The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. Well, it's the most wonderful time of the year. There'll be parties for hosting, marshmallows roasting, so be of good cheer. Everyone, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Whoa. That was awesome. That must be what Pastor Phil feels like. Listen, I always know that the most wonderful time this year arrived late in November when they start playing those schmaltzy, romantic Christmas movies. Do you know the ones I mean? Okay. Um, Some of them are the most implausible stories, but they populate um, the airwaves starting in November leading right up to Christmas. And um, uh, I want to tell you uh, the story of a couple of teardrops, okay? Um, You may not have heard this Christmas story. uh, Two teardrops that met each other just after Christmas on their way to the sea, where all teardrops go. And so the first teardrop said to the second teardrop, they said, I am the teardrop of a girl who lost her boyfriend at Christmas. So sad. And uh, the other teardrop says, you think that's sad? I'm the teardrop of the girl who found him. (laughs) Clearly, clearly perspective is everything. And that's what this sermon series has been about. Gaining perspective on the way that Jesus had endeared himself to those whose lives he has changed. Now, don't get me wrong, I really love Christmas, but I don't love Christmas only in December. I love it in July as well, and in March, and September, in fact, all year round. And what I love most about Christmas is captured in Matthew 1, 23, where he quotes Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that is something that can be celebrated not just at Christmas, but at any time of year. Before there could be a cross, there had to be a cradle. And we call that original moment of God coming to be with us the incarnation. Writers over the centuries have bent language completely out of shape, trying to capture the wonder of this event that we celebrate at Christmas. C.S. Lewis the British scholar, the Oxford scholar, who was an accomplished wordsmith in his own right, tried to do it as well as he could by saying it this way. The Christian story is precisely the story of one grand miracle. The Christian assertion being that what is beyond all time and space, which is uncreated and eternal, came into nature as we know it, into human nature precisely, descended into his own universe, and rose again, bringing nature up with him. It is precisely one great miracle. But God coming to be with man is not just a first century only event. The incarnation goes on and on, as every new Christ follower believes. And so Christmas not only remembers that God is with us, it reminds us that we can all be with God. And today, before we're done, you will have an opportunity to respond to this God who came to be with you. Now, this December sermon series has given us an opportunity to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. And you know what happens at a birthday party. At someone's birthday, you honor that person. You celebrate that person. 
So for the last two Sundays, we've been doing just that, honoring and celebrating Jesus. Pastor Simon and Pastor Lewis have both stepped up to this podium to finish the sentence, what I love about Jesus is, you fill it in, and they have. Today, I want to join them in honoring Jesus by considering one more dimension of who Jesus was and is. And I hope that you have filled in that blank for yourself this Christmas. What is it that you most love about Jesus? So what's the big deal? So why is Christmas so amazing? Why do you find me singing Christmas carols in July on the number one on the way to work? Well, first of all, as I've already noted, it's because Jesus came. It's because he came. But the second is because why he came. The fact that God himself entered into our reality in the person of Jesus is mind-blowing all by itself. The word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. I want to quote my colleague, Pastor Simon, here. <laughs> mind-blowing. But why he came is off the charts, and that why is what I love about Jesus. This is what Jesus says about himself in, in Mark chapter 10. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man, and catch this, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for, any, uh, for many. What I love about Jesus is that he came to serve. This was how he understood his whole earthly existence. And Jesus didn't just talk the talk. He also walked the walk. And as he treads his way through the gospel accounts, he touches the untouchable. He's kind to the disreputable. He forgives the despicable. Think about this. Jesus said, if you look and see what he is like, then you will also know what God the Father is like. Jesus, the creator of the universe, in his flesh served family, friends, and foes alike. Jesus was and is the prototype of a true servant. And if Jesus comes to us serving, then serving is what God is all about. Think about that. God is a servant. Incredible. Amazing. And we are the people that he's interested in serving. Wow. Do you know that there is a place in Scripture where Jesus tells his own Christmas story. It's a passage that we find in John chapter 6, 38 to 40, and it's echoed in Hebrews. It's what I call the Christmas story according to Jesus, okay, in his own words. This is what Jesus says. For I have come down from heaven, that's the incarnation, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that anyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you hear what Jesus is saying here? He came down from heaven and entered into our world to serve the Father by serving us. It's amazing. The Father's will was that you and I should have eternal life, the indescribable gift. This is what he wants for us. And so he sent Jesus to make it happen for everyone who believes in him. And this is what Christmas is all about, the serving God now with us to save us in the person of Jesus Christ. The incarnation powerfully shows just how serious God is about serving those who need saving. 
And so the gospel stories serve up example after example of Jesus showing us just what a servant's heart really looks like. And so as we look into these accounts, what is there to see? What does Jesus' model of service actually look like? So today what I want to do is I want to invite you to shadow Jesus with me to the gospel accounts of John, the beloved disciple, and observe three stories in which the servanthood of Jesus is portrayed. Three ways that Jesus serves people like you and like me. Jesus, uh, John knew Jesus up close and personally. He saw him uh, day in and day out throughout the whole period of his public ministry. And so how did Jesus go about making it better for people and making people better? How did he make such a profound impact on so many? Well, here are at least three ways. He came as a servant, three ways he served that incredibly impacted the lives of people. Number one, if you're following on your outline, what I love about Jesus as a servant is that he was and is a giver in a world full of takers. Jesus was a giver in a world full of takers. He always counted the opportunities where others counted the cost. He always valued the benefit of serving above the cost of serving. Now, if I'm really honest, I have a tendency from time to time to look at the world and the events of my life from the perspective of what's in it for me, okay? Don't you just from time to time go there? Maybe I'm the only one. In so many ways, hasn't this become the catechism of our culture? Look out for number one. There are times when we can all become a little calculating about the investments of our time, talent, and treasures. But for some, doing the math has become a way of life. Judas Iscariot was one of those people. Now, Judas was one of the 12 that Jesus chose, and for some unfathomable reason, he was entrusted with the purse for Jesus' ministry. And the scripture tells us that he made a practice of quietly and discreetly skimming off a few shekels of the offerings for himself from time to time. And so in the Gospel of John, he's outed by a jaw-dropping display of devotion by Mary of Bethany at a dinner party. Now before we get into the account, I just want to tell you that when we used to make our long trips across the prairies or across the Rockies to go home for Christmas, one of the things that used to happen is that Christine would read a book out loud so that we could kind of, you know, get our imaginations going and it would help shorten the trip. And so I still to this day love to have something read to me. And did you know that that's how the Gospels were passed on from generation to generation? And so as I share these stories from Jesus' life, I'd invite you even to close your eyes and put yourself in the story. Put yourself right in the room where some of these things took place. Be there, notice, smell the smells, just kind of be present. And so as I kind of mention these stories, I want you to kind of relive them in your own mind. And I'm going to let John use his own words. Jesus uses this critical moment to help us understand what the heart of service is really all about. So are you ready? Here's the story. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, they gave a dinner for him, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. It was kind of a stow stopper. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Can you picture it? Can you smell it? Are you there? But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, and John is sort of famous for putting in little postscripts 
uh, along the way. And in, in, in uh, paragraphs, he says, Hugh, who is about to betray him, so that we know who he is. He said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, listen to his words, leave her alone so that she may be, uh, keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Okay, open your eyes, come back to the present. What Mary does here is really something special. The ointment she pours on Jesus is worth a small fortune. It was something she could have held on to, has security against the future. But in that moment, she takes advantage of the opportunity to love Jesus while he was there and in person, and when she had the chance. True service is always beautiful. It's uncalculating. And somehow or another, I think Jesus wants Judas to get this. Mary's extravagant, uncalculated, reckless display of service is a picture of the way God serves us. Jesus uses her example to illustrate this is his way of serving. Jesus doesn't humiliate Mary for what she's done, but instead he gratefully receives her gifts and celebrates it. And he celebrates the kind of love that would lead her to serve in this open-handed kind of way. I have a feeling that Mary only did the kind of things she had seen Jesus doing in fact, even though she didn't know it at the time, her anointing of Jesus pointed to the ultimate act of service. Jesus would lay down his life for her and for you and for me. Now for Judas, this was the breaking point. By his math, Mary's over-the-top gesture of service and devotion had simply taken money out of his pocket. He had no eyes to see the magnificence of what Mary had done, even though Jesus tried to get his attention. And so he leaves the party after this moment and he goes to sell out Jesus to the authorities. What I love about the servant heart of Jesus is that it is characterized by open-hearted generosity. That's what goes in the blank on your outline. His service was generously given. It was over the top. It was enough and more than enough. He didn't carry around a calculator to make his serving decisions. Somebody was in need and that was enough for him. Jesus always counts the opportunity where others count the cost. He always values the benefit of the serving above the cost of serving. And so that's one episode. But there's another thing about Jesus serving that I want you to note. What I love about the servant heart of Jesus is that he lifted people up rather than put people down. He lifted people up rather than put people down. He was committed to enabling people to become their best even when they were at their worst. And he doesn't just see who we are, he sees who we can become. Now, we've all made bad decisions, haven't we? We've all made mistakes. And when you've really blown it, have you ever noticed how hard it is to get rid of the smell, if you know what I mean? The aroma of mistakes tend to linger long after the event. There doesn't seem to be a deodorizer for the fragrance of failure. One day, a woman, who had made more than her fair share of mistakes, comes to a well in the heat of the day. She comes then because her miscues have made her off-putting to those who know her. So just to avoid the fuss, she comes to the well at just the time when nobody is likely to be there, but on this particular day, somebody is there. And so let's pick up John's story here. 
And Jesus had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour, around noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. John, in his postscript, says, for his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, would ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And John gives us this little postscript, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, just so you get the point. Sometimes the shame of failure causes us to put up walls to keep other people away, and that was certainly the case for this woman. I don't know that she was all that thrilled to find Jesus at the well, And when he engages her in conversation, she is standoffish at first, to say the very least. But Jesus does not turn away from her. He does not get easily turned away. He calmly asks her questions that draw her out, and she slowly begins to open the door to what it is that he has to say. And she leaves the well not just with ordinary water, but with the water of life that washes away her shame and gives her a whole new outlook on life. Jesus gave this woman his full attention when others wouldn't give her the time of day. Where others saw a problem, he saw a human being. He knew what she was looking for. And so patiently, creatively, he establishes trust with her in order to introduce her to the life she was really looking for. And she became a new creation as a result of the encounter. And we know she was changed because the one who had taken such pains to avoid people went out to find those very same people. The one who avoided conversation now had something to say, and she said it in such a way that the whole town came out to hear for themselves. What an incredible turn of events. What I love about Jesus is the way he served with such creativity. He always looked for another way to kind of reach out and make a connection with somebody who was seeking. Jesus was committed to enabling people to become their best, even when they were at their worst. He doesn't just see who we are, he sees who we can become. Are you beginning to get the picture? Are you seeing Jesus' model of service? He was a giver in a world full of takers. Jesus lifted people up rather than put people down. What I love about Jesus is that he was a servant. But there's one more thing that I'd like to draw your attention to this morning about the way Jesus served. What I love about Jesus' servant heart is that he sought the best interests of others even when it wasn't in his own interest. He sought the best interests of others even when it wasn't in his own interests. He was never too good to do the most good for the least good. He didn't see anyone as unworthy of his best effort and energy. Probably the penultimate example of Jesus serving is the unforgettable moment at the Last Supper where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. It's at a moment of high drama and high impact. And so close your eyes one more time and let's enter into John's story. Now before the peace of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. So during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, remember him? Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, 
knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God, was going back to God, he rose from supper. You can see this in your mind's eye. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist and he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I don't know you, I see a little bit of an echo of Mary's selfless devotion in this story. This was a mind-blowing moment for the disciples. Washing feet was the kind of service they were counting on getting, not giving. And Peter in particular couldn't get his head around what was happening. No son of God was going to wash his feet. What is it with us sometimes that we find it so difficult to receive a genuine act of service from another person? The mic-dropping moment comes when Jesus says, okay, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to also wash one another's feet, for I've given you an example that you should do just as I've done for you. Do you get it? Do you see what Jesus is saying here? We worship a humble king, a king who stoops to conquer, a king who is not above doing what is least to save to the uttermost. Wow. Wow. And one more thing to note here. Jesus washed Judas' feet too. He took into the hands the feet of the man who was just waiting for a moment to run off and betray him, and Jesus served Judas this one last time. Jesus humbled himself to serve the man who had already decided to turn his back on him. He gave his last service to the one who had already given up on him. Wow. Even with his last breath on the cross, Jesus responded to the need of the thief. The man who had earlier mocked him was now looking to him, and he found that Jesus was not too busy saving the world to neglect saving one soul. Jesus modeled self-forgetting honesty, this is what goes in the blank on your outline, in how he served. And this, friends, is what I love about Jesus. He came to serve his father. He also came to serve you and me. How mind-blowing is that? The creator and the sustainer of everything that is graciously, humbly, creatively came with you in mind to rescue you, to redeem you, to reconcile you, to restore you, to renew you. That's what I love about Jesus. And that kind of brings me to the big idea each morning. We have a big idea that sort of summarizes the point of the message. And this is this morning's big idea. Jesus chose to do what he didn't have to do because we needed him to. Jesus chose to do what he didn't have to do because we needed him to. Friends, that is the heart of a servant. When you follow the life of Jesus through the Gospels, you're observing the greatest example of servanthood that ever lived on earth. Jesus lived to do his Father's will, not his own. The Apostle Paul commenting on this says, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ who, even though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. But he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And in serving his father, Jesus cut across the cultural fabric of his time. He talked to people no one else would talk to. He touched people no one else would touch. He spent time with people to whom nobody else would give the time of day. The sick, the wounded, the rejected, the despised, the oppressed, the troubled. These were the people whom Jesus sought out and trafficked with. There's a great lyric 
in the Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and it goes something like this, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. That's what I love about Jesus. Have you ever noticed how many of us typically respond to someone who seeks to do us a service? You know, when somebody goes the extra mile selflessly on our behalf, you know, what do we usually say as a result? I mean, usually we sort of feel a little uncomfortable. It's a little awkward. We feel a little embarrassed. We say things like, oh, you didn't have to do that. Ever said that? Or you say, oh, you shouldn't have, right? Or, oh, listen, I really don't deserve that. Now, on the one hand, we want to appear polite and self-deprecating, right? But on the other hand, we also like to stay in control, don't we? We don't want to be indebted to anyone. The truth be told, when it comes to service, we'd rather be in the driver's seat. It's always more comfortable serving than being served somehow. But a good servant is someone who provides you with what you really need when you really need it, even if it costs them personally. Jesus said he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many because that is what we needed. Jesus is talking about you and me. Jesus served us by laying his life down for us. He served us by dying in our place to bear the penalty of our cross. And the only way we could be reconciled to God is through what Jesus Christ did for us. There is no cross without a cradle, but the cradle always is pointed to the cross. He performed the ultimate service for you and me. Now, what do we do with that? Well, sometimes when you think of what Jesus has so generously, creatively, humbly offered to us, we might say, well, Jesus, you don't have to do that. And you know something? You're right. He didn't. Or you might say, oh, Jesus, you shouldn't have. And you are right. Jesus shouldn't have. Or you could say, oh, I don't really deserve that, Jesus. And you know something? You're right again. You really don't. This is one time when the typical responses are right on the mark. What do we do with the creator of the universe serving us in this way, laying down his life, doing for us what we could never have done for ourselves while there is really only one response. We reach out and we receive with trembling hands the amazing gift of eternal life that Jesus died to provide for me and you. His ultimate act of service has created an opportunity for us. What can we do but take advantage of that opportunity and come near to the God to be with us and make a decision that we want to be with him.